You're listening to The Morning Muster, where sailors get together to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab yourself a hot drink. I'm Teresa Carey. It's a big learning curve if you just buy a boat and think you can just pull on, people want to pull on stuff really quick. Like, oh yeah, I've got to, like, it's busy. It's not that busy. There's a lot of a lot of tidying up. It's like housework, you know, you can't just go live in a house and not do the housework. That was Amanda Swan talking about rigging. We invited Amanda on the show today because not only does she have hundreds of thousands of sea miles under her belt, but she's also an educator. And we like educators. She's also a sailmaker and a rigger. And today we'll be talking about rigging. Yes, the ropes and wires we rely on, but rarely make our maintenance checklists. Let's be real. When was the last time you walked around your boat and ran your fingers along the wires feeling for burrs? Or went aloft and checked the chafe on those halyards? Well, those checks are critical, and we'll be talking about why they matter today. Also on the show, we invited John Thurston. John is a rope expert. He owns Lanix USA in Jamestown, Rhode Island. Rasinante, our Norseman 447, is outfitted stem to stern in Lanix rope. And we love it. And John's advice was so good, we thought you might want to hear some of it too. And if you think rope is kind of boring, well, think again. You've got to hear Ben talk about the time he spent weeks hand splicing wire rigging. I won't tell you how that ends. I'll let you listen for it. And this is the episode where the debate on leading lines aft to the cockpit is settled once and for all, which... By the way, you should check out Ben's article in Sail Magazine called The Con of Leading Lines Aft. It's a good one. Leading the conversation today is Ben Carey, captain extraordinaire and my co-owner of Morse Alpha Expeditions. We provide coastal and offshore sailing expeditions to anyone who wants to feel more confident owning, operating, and cruising on a sailboat. Check us out at morsealpha.com. Now, normally, Ben would kick us off with a question— but John had his own plan. Here they are. Now, Amanda, I have to ask you a question. So when you, you get people that uh, purchase boats right, um, and you commission these boats, so we've noticed a lot of people that they get involved in boating and they don't have any idea or their experience is very, very limited. Uh, this will include running and standing rigging. How do you prepare people for possible disasters like uh, like your cap shroud, the uh, swage finning isn't good and the rig comes down. Well, pre-purchase survey. So get a rig a rigger to go through your boat and then you really need to get up the mast. Like you've got to get your boat and go over it and just write down all your specs, know who your suppliers are, like where you get your rope, what your rope lengths are, rope size. Just, it's just familiar now. Educating yourself on what you have and it's not just, I mean, it's your rig, it's your sails, and know where your backup is. You're a sat phone call away from anybody. So if your capture arm fails, it's like, who are you going to call? Are you going to call your mask manufacturer? Are you going to call your rigger back in South Africa? Are you going to call, like, just knowing your network of how to get it fixed and where you can get it fixed, like educating yourself. And it takes time. I mean, people buy a boat and just don't know what they have. So even going with the rigger over your rig, pull it out and disassemble it and write it all down, photograph it. So you're not having to go aloft. Well, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's very interesting that the insurance companies, especially in the United States, have putting an enormous amount of pressure on boat owners to inspect the rigging. And it, the inspecting the rigging is uh, usually when they see brown, which is iron deposits, 
uh, coming off of a crevice corrosion, but you can't see inside the swage. You can't see that that stainless steel being crushed inside and completely falling apart. Then insurance companies are actually forcing boat owners to say, if your rig is more than 10 years, you have to replace it. And mm -hmm. uh, the insurance companies also are taking position that if the um, if if you don't maintain your rig, whether you're running or standing or basically anything on your boat, uh, there's a clause in there that says that we will not cover any incident. And I think this really came off of COVID because there's all these people that purchase these boats. They probably right. have seen a lot of rigs come down, and you know, a rig could cost you twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, depending on the size of your boat. A major mm -hmm. problem, and it seems like more more insurance companies are getting involved with not taking responsibility. Like I heard one guy coming off of Bermuda, he lost his rig. They cut the rig out, went to the bottom of the Atlantic. They got back into Newport and the insurance broker went down and looked at the boat and says, where's the rig? I said, well, we cut it away and we just use our engine to motor back. He says, well, we need the rig to inspect to see where the failure is. To, and uh, it turned out to be a big mess for the, uh, for the boat owner. You know, and a lot of people don't have 30, 40, 50,000 to drop down on a brand new rig. I don't know. I was wondering if you had any comment concerning insurance companies. And yeah, it's tough. And the I've got a couple of girlfriends in the insurance business, and they stipulate that it's 10 years. And then you can get insurance and they're saying, mm -hmm. well, if it's surveyed, if you know the, the quality, and you can replace your rigging, but the quality is not as good as what you have. It's it's catch 22 on the rigging. And if you get a botched job and a crash rigger just comes in and man just messes with it, you're like, I'm better off, <laughs> better off as I was, you know. Now what's what's happened? And yeah, um, yeah. once again, it comes to education and and convincing your insurance company. This is what I've done. This is everything I've got. What do you find then? Well, I tell yeah. you what, both boats that I've bought recently, I've uh, I've just gone and replaced oh. the rigging right away. Right. I mean, that's one of oh, my first things to do. I, You know what? It just seems sensible because I, I don't know what's been going on with that rig, how it's been maintained. A lot of the boats that I've bought have been in, the, in hot tropic weather. And I think that really kills your stainless, of course. And I just like that security. But yeah, it isn't a big expense. And I think that knowing that you're going into a boat, to you're going to purchase the boat, and then you're going to have all that extra expense on top of it is, it's, well, it's just something you need to go into the well, purchase. You know, you know it's so. interesting. Like we get people that come in with like main halyard issues. And uh, like if you have a fractional rig and you lose your main halyard and it goes down inside the mast, you, you know, you can grab a topping lift that's probably eight millimeters and probably baked in the sun. I think it's just easier just to replace your halyard and stop worrying about when it's going to break. I mean, some halyards I've seen look like they went through a meat grinder, you know, so much abrasion from something, either the shiv or some noise up there. Also, mm -hmm. like jib, jib halyards where they are wrapping their roll of furler up and the bearing goes on the upper unit and then they take their halyard and it starts wrapping around the, uh, you know, the forestay. And next thing you know, the, the halyard breaks and it's been baked in the sun. It's a polyester. I, I, it, I have like a whole box of rope, rope of shame 
of all these people <laughs> that are just pushing the envelope with their with their running rigging and especially up in New England, people have this unique opportunity of taking their line off their boat and I can go down to the local yard and I can see probably 90% of the running rigging is still up, banging on the mast with the... All winter It's long. amazing where people in Florida, San Diego, uh, down in Galveston, Texas, or something like that, you know, it's, it's 12 months out of the year and all these lines don't get a break and the clock is running big time with UV degradation. And I try to tell people that even my own customer base and uh, they still don't take their stuff down. And I put reaving eyes. I try to make it as easy as possible. And besides sending a messenger line with the reaving eye, just so they can take <laughs> down, uh, I don't know. I don't know. You can, you can bring the horse to the water, but you can't make the horse drink the water. Do you so, have any uh, so. storage techniques that you use on your boats, Amanda, when you're not yeah, on well, the off season? Yeah, definitely take all the what lines I can off. So I'll take all the lines off, wash them. That really helps keep your lines in good order. And th then you get to inspect them. So you mask all your lines out. So have a super strong like Dyneema trace line. And what you can take out, take out, inspect it, even end for angel lines. So that really helps as well. So every couple of seasons, I'll just cut off the splice or the knot and totally end for end it. So you're not mm -hmm. getting a set wear pattern. Yeah, it's interesting you said that, Amanda. Bending is such a big thing where the fibers don't like to bend and uh, it's sort of a demise to, to a line and repurposing a line when you order it and it's 120 feet and you add five feet to that where you can repurpose. Uh, the only problem is, I don't know your experience, is when taking an old line trying to resplice, if uh, the fibers get really stiff and the core gets stiff because of all the salt water and the grunge and the grime of, of being out in the water, uh, it's tough to, to do like a class one splice or a class two splice. We almost encourage the people just throw it in the washing machine and bring it down and maybe put a little fabric soft, softer in it. It just loosens the fibers up so we just break into the cover and try to get to the core and do this place. I don't know what your opinion about yeah. that. Yeah, wash your lines because that really helps because that salt is like crystal. So you've got that buildup of salt, especially me, I'm on the ocean. So if you wash your lines, that gets rid of the buildup of salt. And then if you went to storage, you get all the slime and grime and dirt hanging in there. So either at the end of the season or beginning of the season, at the beginning of the season, like make sure your lines are all good to go. Takes time, mm -hmm. put that time in. <laughs> now, how do, you, how do you do, when you go on a long trip, how do you determine how long your lines are? Because, you know, your clock is on and you're doing like two weeks on the water, you know, where people ask me, how, how well do I um, determine how long I go before I take the line down and replace it? Uh, if you're going on a, you know, a 10,000 mile trip, you're cycling so quickly. Do you do you actually change your lines after a long trip? Oh, it depends. No, I look at um, you get depends what line you're using. If it's Dyneema or cover, what the cover is. If you're just going straight core, um, you're just constantly looking at it. So making sure it's good to go. And then like some of the lines, you can just replace the cover and leave the core as good. But you really, it's really up to you to make that core. Once, I mean, once your cover's gone, you can't really put it around yeah. the winch. So 
chafe is a major problem. So what yeah. find the source of what is chafing? Is it the sheave? Is it the sheave box? Is it where it exits out of the mast? Is it your winches are too, you know, too much grip on them? Is your jammer chewing down on it? So what's the cause? And hence mm. UN for end it. Do you do you use a lot of uh, HMPE versus polyester on on your boats or? So now you're talking a strange language. So what's what's HMPE? Uh, it Dyneema. Ah. It's high molecular um, poly polyurethane, and that's Dyneema. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. Dyneema Vectran. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how many brand names are out there? Yeah. Oof. How about you, Jonathan? Yeah, so we have HMPE. We have our own version, but we used to use Spectra, which was made by Honeywell. The most popular is DSM, which is Dyneema. They hold that. Their fibers are very expensive, but they're very good quality, like Marlowe and New England Rope and all the big manufacturers use this. But I've started to notice that some of the manufacturers are starting to lean away from it because of the cost per foot, where we're coming up with their own HMPE. Yeah, because people, they get all queasy when they get a cost of anything over $3.50 a foot. But that's where the cost over uh, gets too high. So let's just say we have uh, a line called Mistral, which is two, I think it's 286 a foot. And they see polyester for $1.36. So they're going to try to push the, the polyester because, you know, if you multiply it over 130 feet, they get <laughs> the money, you know, it's all about the money where if you can get a high-tech line on your boat, it's going to last that much longer. It's not under a lot of stress versus a polyester will be working its butt off with the HMPE, like a, a 12 millimeter is just barely breaking a sweat. Ben, when we did your boat, I mean, we had to go through that same process because you have a big, you have a big vessel. Yeah. And we went through that you know, what can we use polyester? What can we use high-tech fibers with? Right. We tried to be as efficient as possible financially and, but getting the right product on the boat there. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you made a good, you know, made good decisions on what to do. And you're, you're a working boat, so you're out there all the time mm -hmm. and your lines right. are, are on call, you know, for 24 hours or 48 hours in one run, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, and then, you know, we're also not doing high tech stuff because I'm not uh, racing. I just need longevity mostly. And, you know, of course, less stretch is great, but. Um, well, it's, it's interesting, Amanda, you, being uh, in Australia and New Zealand, it, it gets pretty warm down there and you're. Your sun time on, on the covers, do they burn out quicker? What's your experience with that? Yeah, UV, yeah, UV deprivation is, is pretty brutal here. I've just had a friend on an island packet, just a cruising boat, and he's like, oh, my gosh, my lines lasted all the way from the States to here to New Zealand, and I left my boat for COVID, and now they're trashed. I'm like, yep. <laughs> Same with the sails, the mm -hmm. sun cover. They burn out that quick. Huh? Yeah, yeah. You know, you get a lot of use out of a line, and then all of a sudden it's it reaches its use by date. And then I like overnight, you look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, this was fine two days ago. And then all of a sudden the whole line's just gone. So it's not going to- Just comes apart. Yeah. It's not going to just totally bust out on you. Although I saw one Halyard 
the other day on a St. Francis and it had just chafed through in the storm that we just had. So it just had chafed on a lazy jack, one of the main cell lazy jacks, and just totally worn the cover away. So if you're not like using it or looking at your line, I mean, it sat in one place for the whole storm that we had come through New Zealand and like it was the rest of the line was perfect. Um, learning to splice. I mean, I'm probably don't want to end for I mean, don't want to rejoin your halyards, but when I do buy a line, definitely buy it over length. And that gives you the option of cutting out the clip end and the, the working end and changing its, its wear pattern. Uh, try and get your lines kind of all the same length. Uh, not the same length, the same size. So you can switch them out. Like some sheave sizes are all different. If you've got your topping lift is different to your halyard, to your staysail halyard. I mean, if they're all different sizes, that just gets to be a pain. But if you've just got one size, you know, you can switch out a few of your lines and save on that aspect. Um, carry a spare so you can mm-hmm. switch it through. That's a cool idea. Yeah, spare mouse yep. line in your rig so you can get it in there, get it through. If you lose it, it drops inside the mast. You know, you're not totally start getting a crane in to re-mouse it or pull the rig out. <laughs> And you said, you know, you're, you're fractional. Exactly. It's interesting. You said, uh, uh, I've, I've heard a, a story about somebody had a catamaran. They were down in Australia and a rigger uh, stripped the cover off and repurposed the line with a new polyester cover. That's really important because, well, the polyester cover and core depend on each other. And you take either one away, the, you lose the strength of the line. Where if you have a high-tech core, that's the driver, and the cover is just to protect the core. And, of course, the discussion is is when you strip the cover, uh, the core is white. It manufactures sometimes, or most of the time, treat uh, high-tech fibers, but some manufacturers don't treat it, and it looks white. And they say, well, how do I know if that's polyester, and how do I know that that's Dyneema? or HMPE. And I always say, well, there's two things. One will float, one won't. So HMP will float. Uh, if you burn it, polyester will melt. Uh, HMP sort of curls up on itself. Yeah. And also just try to cut it. If you can't cut it or if you're sawing and sawing and sawing, uh, that's a good indication that you've got a high-tech fiber. Yeah. But it's interesting you did say that. That and I don't know if that's a thing in Australia or New Zealand where people repurpose high-tech uh, or they just throw in the, the dumpster and just call it a day. Do, do, do they do a lot of that, repurposing lines like that, just take the cover off? Yeah, I don't think so. I think a rigger wants to sell you a new line. If you want a new line, it's better to get a new line. But if you're out cruising and that's your only right. option – once again, it really depends on the line yeah. that you have. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah. It's still a lot of work to cover a line and then you get, as you get, I don't know, creep, is that the word you're using? You get, it does move to get the two, yeah, a lot of creep. milking and yeah, it's, it's Yeah, messy. it sounds complicated. It's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, things you can do yourself, like just get the line, yeah. replace Well, you it. know, it's, uh, I had a discussion with somebody where it's sort of like a big thing. These catamarans that have these two-to-one purchases, uh, we're getting a lot of hockles, a uh, twist in the line going up to the, the head of the sail at the top or the head of the mast, I'm sorry. So there's a big discussion. It's like why are there hockles getting put into the system? And I know like on a two-to-one purchase, when you raise the sail, there's a lot of line on the deck 
And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if some of these customers aren't putting a figure eight back in or are they doing it like the rodeo style where it's all perfectly even with each other. I know Ben and I have talked about that. What's your response with that where people are putting twist in because they're not wrapping their lineup properly. Interesting stuff. You know, I, you know, I grew up sailing on schooners and traditional rigs and that was all three strand. So my, my go-to was a regular coil. And then it took me a long time to realize that when you're using this uh, braided line, you've got to do something totally different. And uh, I don't know when it was. I think I went to West Marine a number of years ago, and I watched the guy coil up my line. And he did that back and forth thing that I showed you, John. Yeah. With, I call them dog ears. But he had but half the coil on one side of his hand and half the coil on his other side. And he was going back and forth between those two. And uh, it blew my mind. I just never seen anybody do that. And, I, and it all kind of began to click for me at one point and how important it is to coil your braided line properly so that you don't get any kind of twists and hockles. Because my lines had been a big mess in that way early on, making that transition from three-strand three to braided. But um, after I think clicked in my head, and I had no problems after that. Yeah. Well, you know, I get complaints. Just, you know, people, you know, they're this jib. Uh, jib sheets and they're saying that those half hitches are getting bound up on on the blocks it's like this rope isn't any good i said well first of all that's that's induced by you Mm -hmm. whether it's coming off of the of the winch and you're not straightening the line out so you're adding hockle or or a half hitch basically and it's getting bound up under load to on the block and you could hurt the block you break the block uh especially if the line's under load it's a real frustrating thing for a boat owner to deal with i think also i mean every time that line goes around that winch and you put three or four or five wraps on a winch depending on how much you need that it's it's inducing twist into that line and you have to every time you take it off that winch you have to spin the line back out and take those twists out and i don't know some people might not know that or do, do that regularly enough to, to uh, you know, get all those kinks out. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, you you would agree, Amanda, right? I saw you nodding your head there. Yeah, oh, for sure. No, you've got to handle your lines, know how your winches work, get your lines off, straighten them out every time you coil a line. Like even we used to do figure eights, but then you get 12 people on a boat doing figure eights and you don't know what you've got in the middle of the night. So your rodeo coil hanging on a winch, you know, you've got to get it off and let it out pull it in you want to know where that rope is and if someone's mm-hmm. done some kind of figure eight and you go what the frick and they're not even thinking about it and you're like oh man so it's just it's just spending the time just putting in the effort treating it with mm-hmm. care learn your ropes <clears throat> exactly yeah it's very important and it's something that we always teach our students spin that line out all the time we also don't really use any jammers, and I, I so that's a ah, whole nother ball game. Right. I think is you yeah. you go through the cleat, and then you've got to get it to go through that that jam cleat or whatever it is. I don't have any of those on the boat. Yeah. Not a big fan, but um, I think that also makes it more complicated too. That's where they oh, can yeah. get stuck. Cl- right? Clutches clutches can ruin ruin your rope in a in like a New York moment. <laughs> I always lo- I always look at these people that. They come and complain about the the line, and we talk about how they do business. And you soon you soon like uh, Sherlock Holmes get to the to the bottom of exactly what happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, another thing that I get uh, complaints on is uh, you get a brand new line and it's slipping mm. on the clutch. Oh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And so because it's so slippery, so it's brand I, new. I, I so immediately get defensive. <laughs> I try to play nice. It's like, well, how old's your clutch? It's like, oh, it's it's fifteen twenty years old. It's, it's the original of the boat. It's in nineteen eighty five. I'm like, okay, uh, when's the last time you clean your clutch? And they sort of give you that that blank stare. Well, I don't, I don't clean the clutch. Well, there's probably a lot of stuff in there. And also the fact that this thing is constantly being used. There's there's jaws in there. There's a cam, and the cam wears out. The teeth just wear down over a long period of time, especially if you're using like a high-tech fiber like Technora. And like Spinlock, I'm not um, – yeah, Spinlock, they actually – you can take the whole assembly out, the ceramic plate, the cam, and you can replace all mm-hmm. that. Some of the old Antel, you can't do that. But one thing I do tell the people is, is never unload or never let that arm swing forward and, unless it's on the winch. You only let go of a loaded line on, on a clutch under duress. If you're going to be smacked with a wave or you've got a man overboard or you're going to get hit with a microburst and, you know, 60 seconds, then you're just downloading as quick as possible. But what happens is if you unload quick, that line racing out creates friction and friction creates heat. And heat is so bad for lines. Like I know a couple of racers, they use Dyneema Technora on SK99 core, which is, God, I don't even know, 10 bucks a foot. It's just, but these guys, they have these, um, Harkin winches that look like sandpaper. I mean, for a rope, it's like the nightmare section. And uh, it's tough on the cover. And educating people on using a jammer properly or using a clutch properly and maintaining maintaining the, these, the equipment that, like even um, blocks, like the blocks don't work because there's so, uh, salt crystals inside. You know, take some salt, uh, some salt, um, some water and some soap and clean your blocks occasionally. Oh, yeah. So you start with the basics, like this is a line. You've got a winch. You've got your jammer, your clutch. You've got to unload it. So put it onto your winch. Take up, take up loading before you open your clutches. You can't just blow a clutch. And that strips it totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's all line handling. There's a lot. There's a... It's a big learning curve if you just buy a boat and think you can just pull on. People want to pull on stuff really quick. Like, oh, yeah, I've got to, like, it's busy. It's not that busy. There's a lot of lot of tidying up. It's like housework. You know, you can't just go live in a house and not do the housework. So on a boat, it's all about taking care of everything, knowing where your lines are. So, I mean, if you've got sheet bags and all those lines come through your jammers and then you get stuffed into a bag, you've got no idea what's going on. Um, so that's even frightening as well. You got to pull out one line, and you end up with six, and in the middle of the night, in a squall, you're like, "Oh man, I've got to put a reef in," and or running everything back to your cockpit. You're not getting out there and having everything in its dedicated space. So just that clutter that ends up back in the cockpit, I find on modern boats, everyone wants it easy, but there's still nothing like getting out on deck and having it simple, going to the mast. How do you how do you reef on your boat? Ben? Well, everything's at the mast. Nothing's in the cockpit except the sheets. At this point, Yay. yeah. Oh, I like it. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Me too. Um, just makes it so, it's so much faster. I found my first boat that I owned had everything back in the cockpit, and I got so frustrated with it. Same thing with Teresa's first boat, and we the two of us just 
got rid of all the stuff leading back to the cockpit and we went back up to the mast for all the briefing and all the halyards and all that sort of thing because the the friction and the, all the mess in the cockpit we were just not not big fans of that so yeah everything is at the mast reefing's easy you just walk up there center cockpit boat so you don't have that far to travel to get to the mast for us at least and that's it's like why why not Plus, I'm out there and I can look at other things while I'm out out of the cockpit and inspect the, the foredeck, whatever it happens to be. Look up the mast while you're there and check things out. So, yeah. You know, I have to ask you guys a question. So, when I sell the lines, I always try to color code. Yeah. Um, yes. And I've, I've, I've had a lot of people like have to step out in the parking lot because, you know, they want blue instead of green or whatever. Um, and... I feel like if a captain is under duress, whether it be whatever emergency that you can dream up and you get some inexperienced people on board, it's easier for a captain to call a color than it is to say, you know, the jib, the jib halyard or, the, you know, main halyard. And of course, you got this spaghetti of a line, like which clutch is that? And they say, oh, it's on top of the clutch. You can read it, you know. Where you have to dump in 60 seconds, you can't sit there and explain it's mm -hmm. the left clutch or it's a right clutch to, to call a color, a red color. Like I know some of the rope manufacturers, they have white with tracers and the tracers get dirty and the white mm -hmm. gets gray. And where Lanix, we actually make line that all they have colors and they're very specific. And people ask me, do we have white lines? I said, no, we don't have white lines. We never had. That's right. You don't have any white lines, do you? No, we don't. I just thought about that. <laughs> There's a reason for it. Yeah, no, I'm for color coding. And I thought it was standard. Like first reef was always blue. Second reef was red. Third reef was green. And it's not. Like we should just have an industry standard that that's the color of reef lines. And, cool. And like spinnaker's red. Yeah. Genoa's blue. Maine is either white or yellow. I mean – we don't and i'm teaching sailing and i'm on i teach on 13 different boats at the sailing school mm -hmm. here at great escape and every line is a different color on every boat and i'm like can't we just simplify it even for a new sailor so if you come back a year later it's oh it's not the yellow ones not your main halyard it's ah uh, I, I, I just, like that idea. So I go to the mast. I know the blue reef line is blue. I've got my ring is now with blue whipping, and then it's a big number one written on the sail, number two for your reef line, and it's red. And, yeah, I label I label everything. I've had so many mistakes. People put the wrong reef ring on and then start cranking on the wrong line. It's like yeah. if you go to the red ring, go to the red line. Uh, things happen quick in the middle of the night. You've yeah. got three minutes to reef. Can you reef your boat in three minutes? Mm -hmm. what yeah, color right. are you going to pull and can you write the instructions down and give it to somebody when you're on a boat um your boat do you actually color code based on purpose i do totally which is interesting yeah you do interesting uh, even when we were that. rigging well, that's a great uh, idea. yeah no when i was rigging originally in new zealand it was always blue was your first reef interesting. red was your second and green was your third i mean that was just the st i thought was the industry standard and then i go racing overseas and i'm like ah oh. No. <laughs> and, then, um, and then you come out with purple line no. and black line and yeah. bright orange yeah. and then the neons and you've got a traditional gaffer and you're like, oh, oh luckily they're making it's rope look vintage now, which is kind of nice because you don't want day glow green. On hey, Amanda, I want to ask you, um, you said you, you yep. mark your, your reef cringles, your reef. Yes. 
How do, how do you do that? How do you mark those? We have the webbing coming down out of your Kringle, like the the ring either side with the webbing through your yeah. your actual big ring. Yeah. And then I do a whipping around the, the webbing. Okay. So from Marlow Ropes. Do you have whipping twine there at Lennox? Do you have the color-coded whipping twine? Yeah. 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 Great. So if you make a line, make a whipping twine in the same color or a contrast or a color. Like if you've got an orange reef line, then get orange whipping twine and then just whip it like you're whipping the end of okay. a line. Oh, really? So when you bring the ring down, it's in your hand in the middle of the night with your headlamp on, you're like, oh, or even just do two whippings. If you've just got black, say on your first reef, do one whipping on the line, then two, then three. Now you like put that on the bitter end? or No, you, I'm putting that on the – when you have a sales, they used to have webbing rings. It depends on your sale. So now sales – they sew the ring onto the sail with webbing. So it's done as a fan. So it depends what you've got on your sail. But even just getting yeah. a stencil and writing on your sail with a number one, number two, number three. So when you actually grab that reefing yeah, ring. Yes, so you don't get confused. You're looking at something I can in your see face. it being a problem. Yeah. If you bring your, your ring down to your The, the yeah. biggest thing I have with sailors is at the Kringle, the line going through the Kringle. And when it's under load or that wear on the cover that – uh, I'm trying to encourage people to switch over to friction rings and some manufacturer, well, actually Quantum and Dole and all the, all the manufacturers switching over to friction rings where it's less sure. chafing at, you know, coming from the boom up to the crinkle and then back down to the back of the boom, down to the ship yeah, traveling the wherever it's going to yep. Yeah. I, I've been trying to encourage people, especially uh, people having sales made to uh, make sure that there's mm-hmm. a friction ring. Yeah, um, and that's an amazing new trend. And, you know, since I've been rigging for, you know, 40 years, I mean, we started out with wire going through a wire block, and now you can just do Dyneema. You can splice it yourself. You've got a friction ring. I mean, you can put those yeah. little puppies on your vang. Yeah. You're, I mean, you can just put yeah. them everywhere, and they're so nice, and they don't clutter, and you don't get the spurs off them. So if you have an older boat, like definitely educate yourself on the modern lines and friction rings. And I was amazed when we got our Selden mast. I was only 20 years ago. It still came with wire to rope halyards. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you wow. know, like wire to rope splicing was just vintage. And mm-hmm. the new ropes are amazing. Oh, my Soft God. I have and- some horror stories we all yeah, do. I have some horror stories about people that buy these boats in 80, 1985 and they have this wire halyard and goes to polyester and they want to replace the polyester and they want me to splice. And I said, no, I don't do wire to polyester. But the problem with the wire in the transfer over, most eight, uh, boats in that, that time, let's just say it's a 35-footer, you can probably put a high-tech fiber in there because you're actually going down in size. It's a half-inch, uh, half-inch shiv. But the problem is the shiv gets so chewed up from the wire uh, that I almost tell them, says, look, at, I'll put a 10-millimeter line on, and it'll be a high-tech uh, because I can't have a, a polyester for a 40-foot boat. A halyard is just too small. But I ask them, I said, can you just go up? or unstep your mast and replace the shivs. Oh, yeah. And if you're going to invest in line, you've really got to look where it's going mm-hmm. and through your exit slots to your sheave boxes. Yeah. No, clean all that up, invest the money, get a good rigger up there, or pull, as you say, pull your mast out and it's a chance to take all your fittings off and inspect them. And- Interesting. 
Um, ben, when's the last time you've been up the top and checked your uh, shivs out? I like to take the mast out every other year. So that, that's when I do most of my inspection, when, when the mast is out during the winter. And I check it there. I have okay. My shivs are all pretty new within the last four or five, well, five years, I guess. Where did you get your shivs? Um, you know, there was a guy down, at, well, up here in Maine who made them for me. Oh, really? Is that like Delrin? Yeah, or he did Delrin shivs, it... yeah. Okay. So, is it, is it like a bronze, yeah, it's a bronze pushing, pushing inside yep. with the yep. pin? They've been doing great. You know, so I, okay. I inspected them last year because I painted the mask. So I had them out and I took, you know, inspected everything. It looked great. So, and it, but it only been three or four years that I'd been using them. Uh-huh. I know RigRite, I think, has, they, they sell different kinds of uh, shifts based on uh, mask mm-hmm. manufacturers. Um, and, and, of course, they got 8 million options, you know, do you want Delrin? Do you want aluminum or stainless yeah. steel? Or, but yeah, I think the key to that whole conversation is making sure you inspect the shivs because you know if you get a shiv that starts to get a little bitey and not turning mm-hmm. good, uh, mm-hmm. it's not putting friction on your halyard, and now it's, you got a wear spot. Yeah. on the on the polyester. Color. Right, we had that. We also had on the old shivs before I had them replaced was that they were one of them was wobbly, and so it would it would. Um, wobble on on the pin there, and that would allow the uh, line to go to the side jump a little bit and chafe. <laughs> Not it didn't jump the shift yet, but oh. it, it was uh, chafing where it came out of the mast because the whole thing had twisted a little bit inside the mast. So it the little yeah little yeah, slot coming I've out of the mast that. there that would chafe on that. Yeah, that's really important. The pin it's not that the shiv is not yeah. it's tight on the pin. It's not wobbling. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, two years ago, we did a refit on a boat. It was an old boat, 36-footer, mm-hmm. and the sh- I've never seen a ship this right. bad before. Uh, really wobbly. And, of course, it had steel. Uh, I had stainless steel mm-hmm. rigging, and it chewed right. the ship up. And I guess it's just all the force. And then the person painted the mast, and there was paint inside uh, so it wasn't allowing the ship to oh, spin gosh. properly. It was, what a mess, yeah. It, there's quite an art to your halyards, even if you're going to pull a halyard out and you put your mouse line, what do you call it, trace line? You've got a smaller line that you're putting. I call it a messenger yeah. line. A messenger yeah. line. Okay, so everyone's got a different name. But there's quite a knack to that. You've got to keep loading on it, tie your messenger line on, pull out your main halyard. Don't just start pulling away. Don't Once it gets to the top, it'll start coming out super fast so have that messenger line be able to spool off well it's interesting i had a friend uh he had the messenger line and he wasn't putting any tension yeah on the messenger line and on the halyard and it jumped mm. yeah it, it jumped the it'll, uh, jump the it'll jump the sheave sit down the, that's what i thought ben was talking about yeah and you're you're stuck you're gonna miss mm-hmm. you've got to like, get Ooh. a crane or you guys are on so i don't know i mean yeah so just that's a tough one just be careful it's a big learning curve on that make sure you get someone who knows what they're doing with you or even the knock the messenger line comes untied or it gets stuck in the so there's a little bit of an art yeah there sure that. is yeah absolutely ben for rig inspection do you follow a code or do you follow a protocol when you're inspecting your rigging at sea or how do you do that? Um, I, I just go, you know, I, I actually never gone up the mast at uh, underway. I, I just do it, you know, in port. I've never right. been up underway. So um, I like to do that, you know, before we leave on a big trip and just make sure everything looks good. But as far as uh, protocol, I don't have a checklist or anything. I just go up there with my eyeballs and, and look around. It, you know, probably a good idea to have some kind of a checklist. But I feel like once you get to know what things are supposed to look like, it, there's it's all pretty cut and dry. 
But yeah, I like to check the ends of all the spreaders. I'm checking the shivs at the top. When you yeah, go when up. I go up, yeah. Right. And of course, then you're checking. You're also checking your standing rigging at the same time. But running, running, and standing rigging, and uh, when you're up there, you're checking all your antennas and everything else, and your lights and all that. But um, so you know. <laughs> and how? I guess it's an it's an hour. It's about an hour going aloft, right, to do a rig check and. I suppose it's, yeah, I don't take some electrical tape. I don't know if it you, takes me that long, but you don't time it. No, I don't think so. No. Oh, okay. Well, you know your rig, so you pull it True, out. True. Yes. Paint it. You, yeah. you guys got some some. I don't know. I'm so scared of heights that uh, you never catch me. Oh, up it's fun up there. You're oh, a rope guy. Oh, You're scared of heights, <laughs> Mr. Fireman. No, up a ladder. No, I'll be the. I'll be. Oh. I'll be the guy. Uh, <laughs> it's gotten worse as I've gotten older. Believe me. Yeah, even the six foot ladder is terrifying me now. So. Yeah, I I would be down on the winch. I'll tail off, let you go up. But me going up on a seat, no way. And it sounds like you two feel very comfortable. Oh, with yeah, it. I enjoy it. It's a, it's a good time oh, up there. And it's better than cranking someone else up. So I'd rather just go up in the chair. Well, it sucks, though, when you're on a mooring ball and you get that southerly breeze kicking in during the summertime and you're moving like five feet up there. Probably oh, feeling yeah, you ill. Get a good, you get a good leg workout holding yourself to the yeah, mast. You wouldn't catch me up there for sure. But, John, you've been... <laughs> Basically, hug the mast. Do you do all your splicing there? Uh, yeah, no, I, I I learned the hard way. Unfortunately, uh, I I was watching YouTube and I start going through. And then the scary thing is when I actually have a rigger come in that's been doing it for thirty years, and they look at me like I am <laughs> burning the butter kind of thing. And it's like, no, you can't do it that way. And uh, like I've had this gentleman now, Matthew Otto from the. Oh, yeah. His website's amazing. Oh, his pictures are incredible. Yeah, the rig loft. And Matthew, Matthew's a tough one, but he is super, super knowledgeable. He's got all these little tricks. And he's taught me. Also, another gentleman, Ben Zartman. He's, he's coming to the shop and showed me a lot of things that I see on the internet that I had never experienced before. And that just it just helps me. You know, I, I remember when I started, I would like hour and a half to want to splice and finding this is totally ridiculous. <laughs> and I'll bring it over to West Marine and have them do it. Now I'm down to 15 minutes, 10 minutes uh, doing splices, uh, extremely efficient. And also I'm cheating now. I bought a 9,000 pound power winch. So when I do the berry, I just clip in and push a button and watch the uh, splice come together. Mm, but okay. if you're doing 20 splices on a, you know, a job, like we're doing Sail Newport, uh, we're doing 20, uh, 20 halyards, it's tough on your body, your hands over a period of time. Like the end of the day, it's like your hands are totally toasted. Uh, where I have the power winch, I can just push a button and everything comes right. together. I got a little story for you real quick. <clears throat> when I had my Bristol Channel Cutter, the 28-foot, um, I decided that I was going to do all new rigging. Like uh, like I said, I like to do new rigging when I buy the new boat. And I decided I'm going to splice this stainless steel 1x19 wire. And so I, I did all that. This was I was living on the vineyard. I went down to the one of the local riggers. He said I could use their vice, and so I did that. I did my one by nineteen splices for the entire rig. And there's a lot of lot there's a lot of wires on that boat because cutter rigged. I you know I bought all the parts and pieces, and and then I was sharing pictures of the job I had just done with somebody, another rigger, and he said, "Dude, you used hollow thimbles. You need to use solid thimbles." Because as soon as you get some pressure on those, they're, you're going you're gonna to bend those thimbles. They're going to crush. And there goes all your strength. You don't have that nice 
bend to your wire, you're going to have a nice, a hard. I said, oh, you're right. And I just, you know, I'd spent days and days doing this splicing. And, and so I basically just threw the whole thing away and went back to stay locks. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. That's frustrating. Yes, very much so. But, you know, I, at, at that point, you, what, what are you going to do? How do you feel about your people, uh, your your clients or the people that listen to this? You know, you say something and they're like shaking their head and they're like, God, what? You know, what's the problem? Oh, no, you can't right. do it that way. Uh, you know, when you put your stuff on the Internet or Instagram, your stuff is being mm -hmm. seen all over the world. And I'm sure mm -hmm. I, I get comments, but it's usually not a negative. It's usually a positive. But I'm gonna guarantee you I'm gonna post something and somebody say no that you can't do it that way. Right. If you put something on the internet and you have a response from somebody, uh, one of your listeners or a viewer, and oh, said, yeah. "Hey, this is no good. You know, you shouldn't be telling people that." Or oh, sure, all the time. Or don't we all? I mean, there's a lot of hecklers out there on the internet. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you can sit in your chair and. Yeah, where have you been? Yeah, yeah, I mean, Come on, John. Like, I, I, I try not, get, get I try out not there, to dude. Listen. Like, get up a mask sometime. <laughs> like, put yourself out there. I don't want to like, step out of your comfort zone. So. <laughs> oh, uh, but, you know, some people, it's a good discussion. I sometimes, sometimes it's not, but most yeah. of the time, I think you can turn it into a discussion and learn something from it or educate other people. But the other day, I noticed that I saw um, Dyneema splicing, and they had also used hollow thimbles. And I, and so I was thinking to myself, well, how come they can use hollow thimbles on that? But do a load test, put it on the test yeah. bed, and see what you get. Because we used to use hollow thimbles and then weld a bar across them when we were doing back in the day of. Benicas with double clips. Uh -huh. We'd use a hollow thimble and then do a little crossbar, like yeah. a spreader bar across the top of it. And we'd take that to the stainless guys downstairs. I mean, that could have been an option. You could have just before, right. you know, use your hollow thimbles. Because we had to fit two clips in it. So you, if you've got to get two clips in the end of a guy rope back in the days of stainless. Yeah. Now we just use right. dynamic. Right, right. We don't even use spinnaker sheets, actually. Right. <laughs> Why would you? Why would you? Technology's changed. And keeping up with the trends. So, like, owner's groups, if you've got a boat, like, get aboard someone else's boat. Don't just think you're going it alone. Like, ask around, post something on a Facebook group and share share your knowledge. If you have something that you think works for your boat and you've tested it, or spend the time and hire and the money and hire a rigger to come and do your boater once over if you don't know enough. I mean, that's another problem I see is that people just get down these weird holes of trying to overrig their boats and ropes here and there and boom preventers and jibe things and this and that. Mm. And then you're like, oh man, there's so much going on mm. keeping it keeping it simple. So don't, you know, do know what you've got and what's working and if something breaks. I think it's it. something we all suffer from is that we often, a lot of us sit at desks and work and we're thinking about sailing while we're sitting there working. What can I do that's related to sailing? Oh, I can buy more stuff because I'm sitting at my computer here. And so you just end up buying more stuff <laughs> because that's a way to kind of be sailing while you're not sailing, you're working. So it, it happens to a lot of us, doesn't it? So we end up no, with get out more tricks and toys Very than simple. we really need. And, and simplicity really is the key. And, and you get out there and you start sailing and you realize how little you need. And every time something breaks on our boat, I just remove it because I really don't need it 
I don't need to replace it. So not every time, but a lot of times, things that have broken on the boat have just been removed from the boat rather than fixing or repairing or, you know, re replacing. So I think it's, a, it's a, just something we need to remind ourselves. When you're sitting at your desk at the computer, don't just buy stuff for your boat that you don't need. Well, personally, I think they should invest more money in the line than yes, I, the new gadgets. Absolutely, I agree. Better, I, I'd say spend the extra buck a foot and get the get the good I stuff. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, all this electronic stuff, it's it's incredible. And you can spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for – I mean, certainly you're not going to get lost because you have GPS and nobody knows how to do chart plotting anymore. Of course, Ben, you know how to do that. You mm -hmm. teach it. But what happens if your GPS goes down? What do you do? How do you navigate? Does anybody know how to use a sextant anymore? I could probably <laughs> yeah. not. There's an app, a phone app for that, isn't there? Right. Uh, simplicity, rope and rigging, uh, hands on. Just get yourself a palm, get yourself a needle and thread, watch some splicing tutorials by over length because you're going to be cutting off. Your first few splices look like something, something the dog dragged around the. <laughs> but don't get frustrated. Like, do you do splicing videos, Lennox? Uh, John, sorry. Yeah, well, we do. We have some splicing videos that you can see. Um, All right, cool. We just got a comment from a customer that wants to get some halyards and was complaining that the video wasn't working with the splice. And I'm, I'm curious to see what – I just got one uh, email. So my end uh, comment was, well, why don't you just have us pay 25 bucks and we'll do the splice for you and I'll mail it to you. Uh, and he has not responded. Show me the money. I have a 9,000 pound power winch and I can just bury everything. And people are on the boat trying to, to you know, grab the winch and try to bury the uh, cover. And it's being a little fussy because we do have covers that splice better than others. I know riggers, uh, like if I hand them a line and they can't splice it in 15 minutes, they don't want to talk to me and they don't want to have the rope. It's weird. But and I said, well, this is good, has good wearability. He says, I don't care. If I can't splice it in 15 minutes, I don't want your line. Hmm. Yeah, and there's some tough lines out there. We have like 32 plaque covers that are heat set, pre stretched. Covers are unbearable to get in, you can't get the core out. Uh, it, and there are certain manufacturers that make these lines. Interesting. So you 32 plaque covers super strong, and they, they don't really care about that because they're still splicing an hour ah. later. No, that's a, that's a good little piece of information yeah, there. So you're saying they'll sacrifice some some uh, quality because it's easier to work with. That's correct. Mm -hmm. If the cover pops right out, that's a good that's a, that's a good line for them to work with. Yeah, but you can see the core. You know, it's yeah. like as soon as you bend bend the line, the the uh, core is popping out right. of like a hernia. <laughs> uh, I know that that line's not going to make uh -huh. it. Yeah, uh -huh. it's interesting. Some and I don't want to disparage my other competitors, but one of my competitors has a line that uh, I guess the cover is a little bit loose and they got my cover and my rope and they started working with it. And they said, God, this is really hard. And I'm like, what are you using? Is he told me. And, and I sort of laughed. I said, really? I said, well, you should be able to take a little time to, to break it out to get to the core, but it shouldn't pop out like that. And and they were complaining about the bend on a uh, headboard shackle that the cover, or the core was popping out. I said it shouldn't do that. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, Amanda, I totally hear you. I mean, anybody can do anything, just as long as you have the time. 
you yeah. know, and the proper tools and take a class or even hang out with a rigger if you can possibly, it. you know, they have time to, to show you how to do class one or class two splice. Mm-hmm. I do want to um, start the thing about wrapping up, but I want to talk about creep because we talked, we brought it up earlier in the conversation. So what is it? Let's talk about creep. Mm-hmm. So how we, how we look at line is when a line goes under load is called elastic deformation. So, and that is a memory that comes back. So if I load a halyard and I take that pressure off, it goes back to its original form. Um, when you load a line to what's called the yield point, that goes into what's called plastic deformation. That's actually when the molecules are pulling apart. So that that's physics and that's real. Those are numbers we can actually call on a line. We can do a load cell. We can do all that. But there's a condition that when you go out for like 24 hours or 48 hours, so when you load a line and it stretches out and then it sort of stops, and then over a long period of time, it continually stretches very, very slowly. You can't see it with your eye. That's called creep. Now, that condition, uh, which I tried to get information, I finally got it through a uh, materials I don't know if you want to call it a physics instructor that specializes in materials. And I asked him, I said, what's the deal with creep? And he said, that is actually plastic deformation. That's actually damage where the line is actually pulling apart. And I said, well, even if it's in elastic deformation, it's still going to go back to zero. He said, no, it's not. That line will not go back to its original form because it's been stretched. But what happens is with creep, it's... It takes a long, long time. It takes 10 years. And that's actually what, what I think in my theory is that the creep adds up to like an eighth inch, an eighth inch, an eighth inch. So if you go into plastic deformation, you stretch that line out, it goes to fracture point, it breaks. But with creep, it's just sort of a slow process. We've done some uh, testing on some line where a boat went out for three years and came back. And we broke all the line on the boat. We took it off, and then we we did a load test on all the line. And we noticed that all the line dropped in strength by 30% hmm. over three years. And I have a suspicion that some of that has to do with creep. All line manufacturers know about creep. It's a, it's a problem. Um, through cycling, especially in the super high loads, like with Dyneema, creep is a big problem. And... Um, that's a good question. And a lot of people misunderstand basically what creep really is. And it's actually damage. It's actually damage, permanent mm-hmm. damage to your line. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. I, I don't have a graph to show yeah, you. Yeah, no, that makes sense. What that looks like. Sure. I mean, you're de- deforming the molecules, it sounds like. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Well, that makes sense why that would weaken a line. Amanda, did you have something to add to yeah. that? Not really. I mean, I just always go like one size bigger. Right. To allow for just general. What amazes me is that why does a line get fatter with age? Like you think if it was constantly stretching, wouldn't it get smaller? But you'll notice on your boats, I mean, maybe the part that you're using, but the tail ends all just like beef up one Uh size. So if you are replacing your lines, when I'm out 
long-term cruising, I always carry a little sample of each line size so I can match it and go, oh yeah, this is seven eighths or whatever size, seven sixteenth or 12 mil. And it's like, now it looks twice as fat on one end. Maybe the size, the end that's being used gets skinnier. Okay. So. This is good to know because every time I buy a new line, I'm like, man, are they making the lines smaller now? <laughs> I think they're cutting costs and making them just a yeah. spare hair smaller. Yeah. But no. I swear to God, I have people bringing their five-age line and I look at them all like, good Lord, man. <laughs> How does this fit in your clutch? Right. Uh, oh, yeah. And on all these old big boats, they had big yeah. lines. And now that they lines did. have got stronger, lines have dropped down to like, instead of 5.8, they're down to yeah. uh, 12 millimeter. And, and everyone wears you know, sailing we, gloves. I mean, I never knew what sailing gloves were. And now everyone like, have sailing gloves. they need gloves. <laughs> we're, we're, I, they're useless. Sometimes I have a, a no glove policy. <laughs> Oh, I, I ban them. Yep. They yeah, get yeah, wet day one. Oh, yeah. Like just, I'm like, seriously, sailing gloves? And then you're like, you're fiddling with your glove. I'm so worried they're going to handle the line and the glove's going to like some cartoon that's going to be left holding the line. Oh, I mean, oh, don't get me started on. Especially oh, man, you guys in the a- rain up in New England. I mean, when oh, you- God. It's hmm. funny. Sounds like we need to sail together. It sounds like you guys don't have office hands. You guys have calluses. On I'm, the I'm palm a your hand. sailmaker rigger. Yeah. I'm, I'm up rigs and yeah. Man, it's Believe me, like, I've been out of construction grip. for a long, for two years. I, I don't have, I have office hands now. <laughs> no. Are you wear sailing gloves? Yeah, oh I my do. God. I do. All I'm right. a cheater. <laughs> End of podcast. Okay, He's don't. out. Okay, come I'm done. Like, <laughs> that's it. Like, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't check before that, before the, we did this podcast. Next time I'll ask, <laughs> do you wear sailing gloves? <laughs> What do you charge for a splice? Can I ask you that? Uh, 25 bucks. Hot. That's really say. reasonable. No, I shopped around. I, I, I had to make sure everybody was uh, we were charging. I'd like to charge more, but they're not going to pay for it. So. Yeah. So it, used to be 30, it used to be. We offer that service for sure. Only if you buy your line. Yeah. You if you buy a brand new line. line. I mean, people don't. Not, there's a lot of people don't have splice and they just prefer not to deal with that. So mm-hmm. for 25 bucks, it's really super awesome uh, there are people that do not want to pay the 25 dollars that put knots or a bowl in and say that's good enough i tell them says you've lost about 45 percent of your line load on on that knot and and then i get well you know what it's been there i've been using knots for 17 years and i'm like okay i don't even argue anymore we're not going to talk about plastic or elastic deformation or or any of that because they don't care they're saving 25 bucks and they're gonna put a knot in their line so and this happens with other people not just me yeah i know you i was actually talking you (laughs) off the bridge it's like ben we're putting splices in every single shackle on as it's like oh well i normally don't do that i i teach knots you know (laughs) i have a video on how to tie this um, but you were really cool about it. You actually switched over because you only lose about 5% of line load on a splice versus 45% on a knot. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Maybe was that convincing to you? Or? For me, oh, I, I'm totally into it. But, you know, for my program, my sale training program, I want people to be tying knots as much as possible. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I tell them that detail. You're better off having a splice because it's stronger. But on our bow, you're going to tie another bowling. Go for it. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Here's another opportunity for you to perfect your bowling. Have at it. Well, it's interesting. Kim Kim Hackett at Sail Newport said, uh, Jonathan, I understand you're doing a lot of lectures. 
I said, yeah. I said, we're doing a not class. You want to teach it? And I said, no, no, <laughs> no, I'm not going to. I'll teach a splicing right. class, but I'm not going to teach a not class. I guess we do. Well, let's wrap it up, you guys. It's been it's been a great conversation. Amanda, it's a pleasure to uh, to hang out with you. Yeah, no, likewise. We need you on the ground, Jonathan, like back at base camp. So we need that those strings yeah. to keep us. I'll be in my office with my power gamefully, uh, game fit. <laughs> Yeah, your power winch power and your winch. bits of string and your. Now watch your... you guys go up, go up the pole, and uh, I'll stay at the bottom. All right, very good, you guys. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts, or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at morsealpha expeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother. And you can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found.